Let me echo what uh, Ann just shared a few moments ago. Uh, and welcome online today, uh, the 142nd Field Artillery uh, Brigade headquarters that's watching online today. And welcome you guys and gals as you join us. Uh, welcome, welcome them. Welcome our kids in the room. Uh, big church today. Uh, it may be a little bit noisier today. That's okay. We can deal with that. Uh, we can roll with that. And, and, and some of the parents pulled up, man, what's family worship day? Oh, that means I take my kids to church with me day. Well, that's what that translates for you. But hopefully, hopefully, hopefully it translates into family worshiping together in all of its clunkiness and all of its, uh, again, awkwardness at times, but hopefully beauty. Hopefully there'll be some times of, uh, of deep truth that even your kids will take home and create conversation in the car. Uh, listen, I want to invite you next week. And again, Kids, you bring mom and dad back, okay? Next week, we're having a birthday party, all right? Finally, Grace Point is no longer a teenager. We are 20 years old next weekend. And so we're excited to have our annual strategy meeting and party and celebration. And we've got so much planned. Uh, I can't even cover everything that's planned for next weekend. So just be here. Please, as any time you're planning for this, there's logistics. There's food, there's preparation. If you can let us know by registering, simply texting GPC20 to 97000, you'll get a form back. You can sign up really quick, even during this message time. It will help us not over prepare, but not also not under prepare, because there's nobody who wants to leave here hangry on a birthday party, all right? So we want to have meal, we're going to have a great time, we're going to have some games. It's going to be a, a blowout birthday party. We're 20 years old and we're celebrating that as a church. But here we are today. I want to tell you there are certain things in life that I get excited about. Birthday parties are one, tests are not one. All right. Anybody struggle with test anxiety in the room? All right. Years ago, you were in school. Remember way back then? Yeah, maybe some of y'all are still in school. You're just still struggling from finals a few weeks ago. Test anxiety is something that just crippled me growing up. I did learn with my dyslexia that if I can get in front, study, prepare, I can actually go in and do pretty good on a test. But man, I needed a lot of runway. I needed a lot of study time. I needed a lot of helps to kind of prepare myself for the test. But the worst of the worst is when you walk into class, the professor or the teacher sits, you sit down and they say, take out a piece of paper and a pencil. Then you know it's a pop test and a pop test are the worst. All right. Because my anxiety anyway, just literally goes through the roof. You know, when they make that statement that it is test day. Well, most of, of, of the test uh, anxiety mechanisms to help you deal with test anxiety. Uh, I, I read a blog this past week on how to deal with test anxiety. Princeton Review. You can go Google it yourself and find it. And if you deal with test anxiety, then maybe you can get some helps. But the first five things that they tell you to help deal with test anxiety do not help with a pop exam. They help with long-term prep. Verse one is prepare for the test. That will help with you with test anxiety. But if you haven't read the chapter or you've, you didn't know there was going to be a pop test and, you, and all of a sudden it's dropped in your lap, there's no prep time. 
You have to be ready. You have to stay ready. You have to live ready. And so, again, I'm just kind of giving you, uh, those of you who struggle with that, but listen, most of life is a pop test. You don't get to prepare. Nobody tells you three weeks in advance that you're going to have a big final exam. Nobody tells you that it's going to be multiple choice. Nobody, sometimes it's just a blank sheet of paper and you have to figure it out for yourself. Testing is no fun. I got a Bible verse for you today. Genesis chapter 22, be finding Genesis 21 and 22 will be there today. Here's the verse. It's really short. Are you ready to read it with me? Read it out loud with me. God tested Abraham. You can take out that personal pronoun and put in your name any day of the week. Because that test becomes so real and so often and so unexpected and so not planned and so much not what you wanted. Anxiety can go through the roof because just as Abraham goes through tests, so you will go through tests. So I will go through tests. And how do you deal with it? Well, deal with it. Watch the disciples. Here's you got professional fishermen. And they lived on a boat. They operated with nets. They knew the, the Sea of Galilee backward and forward. They could map it out in their sleep. But if you'll notice when you read through the Gospel of Mark, every time Jesus gets near a boat, gets in a boat, gets around a boat, it's test day. It's either walking on water or it's a storm or it's cast your nets out again and you've been doing it already all day and all night long and you didn't catch anything. So it's it's leave your boat and walk away and follow me. So every time you get near a boat when you're a fisherman, you ought to feel comfortable. But really what God does is he takes the ordinary everyday life that we live, something that we feel confident in. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a job, whatever. And it's in that that environment of the everyday that he tests us and that's no fun when that test day comes but it's it has a a goal in mind so much of the time it has a positive goal in mind but anxiety is what takes over but what we need to do is become more expectant of what God is doing in the test What is he trying to show in the test? What results is he building up towards? James chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. And this is in the New Testament. I know we're we're in Genesis, but this is a biblical truth all the way through. He tells us, count it all joy, brothers, when you uh, meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So God doesn't just test us to test us, to send us through the the grueling pain. He doesn't just turn up the heat in our life just to turn up the heat in our life because he's some sadistic kind of father. He actually has a goal. And we actually have a response. And it's not test anxiety, but rather it is anticipation of what God is trying to do. Test days with God basically show us what we're made of. Think about that. Testing, it's a process. It's a fiery process. It's a melting process. It's a proving process. It shows us what we're made of. It gives us a revelation of who we are and what what, what we're made of. But it also helps us to become what we are not, but we wish we were. That's what the test is. It's not only a revelation, but it's also a transformation. It's not only testing us, testing us that it would produce steadfastness and steadfastness would have its perfect result, that you would be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So again, the tests that we go through are not just random, ambiguous, 
purposeless testing, the testing that you may, some of y'all are right now in the midst of a test. And then you're in the midst of that test. You say, God, why? Maybe the question needs to be, God, what? What am I made of? What am I not made of that you're trying to make me? What are you trying to do in the midst of the test? Abraham is not only tested here in chapter 22. I think he's tested in chapter 12. Abraham doesn't show on the scene, show up on the scene until chapter 12. And there he is tested to be willing to separate himself from his past. You're going to leave your father and your mother and your kindred. You're going to leave your homeland. You're going to separate yourself from your past. And in the passage we're going to look at today, he's going to be asked to separate himself from his future. He's going to actually ask him to put his son, his, his, his only son as he calls him, and we'll explain that in a moment, the son you love, put him on an altar. So God literally tests him from asking him to separate from his past, asking him to separate from his future. God tests him. And in his testing, he is showing him what he's made of, but he's showing him also what he is making of him. So again, we're in Genesis chapter 21 and 22. We're going to hit two chapters today, and that's going to be a rapid fire. But let me kind of catch you up. If you haven't been with us since the beginning of the year, we've been in Genesis. Since uh, Easter, we've been talking about Abraham being a friend of God. In Genesis chapter 12 to now we're in chapter 21 and 22 today. But we're skipping some in there if you've been following along. What about chapter 18, 19, and 20? Well, there's a lot that happens in there, but I'm not going to spend much time on that because in 18 and 19 is really whenever Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's just a hot mess and Sodom and Gomorrah, it's really more a story about Sodom and Gomorrah and the mess that was going on and Lot and how he got sucked into that and how all that was transpiring. And I actually dealt with that briefly on April 25th. If you want to go back and watch that message or listen to that message when I talked about how to walk away. We talked about Lot. Lot had a hard time walking away from that. And we see in that passage, uh, in, in, in that section of Scripture. And this series is really primarily about Abraham and his life. Genesis chapter 20, though, is almost like Groundhog's Day repeat. Because it's like Genesis chapter 12. Didn't Abraham lie about his wife, about his, Sarah being his sister? Which is a half-truth, by the way. But also in chapter 20, he's going to lie to, to Abimelech about, about, again, it really comes down to showing a weakness inside of Abraham of trust. Does he really trust God? Is, he, is, he, is, he really, is, there, is there really going to be truth in his heart? And so there's a truth and trust issue that's going on in him because he lies about Sarah being his wife. He calls her her sister, which is a half-truth. Okay, because they, I know it's a little bit awkward, but it's a little Arkansas there on you. He marries his sister. But, uh, but a half-truth, it was only a half-truth. This is what a professor of mine said, a half-truth that isn't the whole truth is a whole lie. And so he takes a little bit of the truth and begins to distort the rest of it. We're in chapter 21. We're 21 where Isaac is finally born. 25 years in the making. 25 years we've been waiting for Isaac to be born. It's born to Sarah and Abraham, but there's this beautiful thing that happens in the scriptures that I want you to see it now. I want you to watch it when you're reading through the the rest of the scriptures. When you're reading through the narratives, especially, especially, it's what scripture does with time. Sometimes it expands time out and it covers a lot of real estate in a very short amount of time. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1 to 4, in the very first two verses, it will deal with expanded time. Where in nine months, it's going to cover 
It's going to cover nine months in two verses. In fact, follow along as I, as I read verse, uh, uh, chapter 21, verse 1 and 2. You'll see, the Lord visited Sarah, and she said to the Lord, excuse me, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. What was that promise? The promise was that Sarah would conceive and bore Abraham a son his old age in the time in which God had spoken to him. So in the matter of one verse, she goes from conception to pregnancy to full-term birth. In a matter of three words, covers nine verse nine months of her life okay now that's not that's, why, why is that that's expanding time out okay just covers a lot of ground in a very short amount of verses but then the scriptures will sometimes come down and compress time I'll, I'll explain the why behind this in just a moment look at verse three and four it's going to take instead of nine months it's going to take it and compress eight days into two verses so two verses for nine months, but also two verses for eight days. If you look at verse three and four, uh, this is what it says. It says, and Abraham with him, and whom Sarah bore him Isaac, and Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now, I love that, that statement there, because you just see, again, you see the birth, you see the naming, you see the circumcision. Now, that's important there. When, 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 when the scripture and the, and the historical narrative compresses time, it's doing it for emphasis. All right? It's trying to really pay attention to this section right here. I'm not speeding through nine months in two verses. I'm showing you something that you need to slow down on, slow down, pump the brakes, pause a little bit, read a little deeper, meditate a little longer. Why is this so important? Why is the circumcision? Because it points back to the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant, as, as, as Brett talked about so well last week, the covenant relationship with God, that circumcision was the marking of the covenant. Now, covenants are incredibly important in Scripture. And I, I pointed this out before that it, it, they start back whenever the very first covenant was established between a man and a woman. It was marriage. Adam, think, think about Adam, what happens with Adam when that marriage covenant happens. God gives him a bride and a honeymoon. That's a pretty good gift. The next covenant comes along. It's Noah. Noah docks the, the boat on the shore, opens the window, looks out, sees this beautiful rainbow. Gets the beautiful vista of a rainbow. Abraham comes upon his covenant. What am I going to get? Another bride? Another beautiful sunset? No, you're going to get a hot knife and go circumcise yourself at 85. That's a short end of the stick, okay? <laughs> Pun intended. It's kind of a ripoff, if you ask me. Don't, don't let uh, Brett think that he can out-pun me. I'm a pun master. Um, you can explain that to the kids on the way home, okay? You're welcome. Covenant signs are beautiful, sometimes, are difficult sometimes. Uh, Baptism is a covenant sign for us. When we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ and we walk through the waters of baptism, that is that covenant symbol, statement 
that just as Jesus, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not I. I, I live because of Christ and, and, and I am baptized into his name. And there's so many different verses I can pull from to, to speak of, to point to. That is a beautiful picture. Our next baptism will be in August. If you've never declared your faith in Christ, I invite you to be a part of it. But this whole expanding time and and compacting or compressing time is a beautiful part because it's pointing to something that's very significant. Now, it's chapter 21. Isaac is born. Let's go on to chapter 22. Isaac's going to be older, and we're in chapter 22 is where we're going to spend the, the rest of our time. But I want us to focus on this, and I want us to see... In verse 1, what it says, in the context, verse 1 says, In these days, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He's going to say that three different times, by the way, in this passage. I'll let you find it for yourself the other times. Here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains in which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled a donkey. And he, he, he took two of his young men and with him and, and son Isaac. And he cut the wood and he burnt the, uh, for the burnt offering. And he rose uh, and he went to the place in which God had told him. When you go to this passage I think I want to come back to that first statement. God tested Abram, Abraham. Why does God test us? I think there's two main reasons that you see in this passage that you can see in your life, that you can see in my life, that you can see in Abraham's life. That one of the, again, lots, lots of reasons there, but one of those would be it shows us where our love and our loyalty lie. You know, where, where's your real love? Where's your real loyalty? Where's your real heart commitment? I love it that God goes straight to the heart. He goes straight to the heart. And he, he, he brings out the heart of, of, who, uh, uh, of where, where Abraham is. And he's thinking about his succession. Now, now you've got to remember here, as he comes to the heart, Abraham does have another son. His name is Ishmael. And, and, and you might get into the whole complex, convoluted thing of Ishmael, he's the, where the Arab nation is, is kind of birthed and born and, and, and kind of comes into a full, 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 full realm. And in fact, the Islamic world would look to Ishmael as the, the successor of the blessing and as, as the firstborn uh, true son. And, and let me just say this, that God doesn't love Isaac more than he loves Ishmael. God had a special place for Ishmael as well. In fact, in chapter, back in chapter 16, verse 10 and 11, it says, the angel of the Lord said to, said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring. This is to Hagar, who's given birth to Ishmael and cannot be numbered for the multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction." Listen, God is the God of the Arabs, is the God of the Americans, is the, God of, is, the, is the God of the Hebrews. He's the God of it all, and he loves us all. He does have a special line that he's going to do something, and we're going to get into this later on, come August, when, it, when we're going to talk about the blessing and how the blessing gets passed down to generation and to generation. And so Isaac is, is certainly the blessed one, but it doesn't mean that God doesn't love the whole of his creation. 
When you look at this, look at verse 2, and it says, take your son, your only son. Now, that word only actually means more like favored son, your favored son that you're going to pass down the blessing, your only son, your favored son whom you love. He really goes to the heart of who this child is. And what does he tell him to do with him? He tells him to offer him. What did I say? Why does God put us to the test? To show us where our love and our loyalty, where it lies. What does he do? He goes straight to the heart. He says, I'm going to go to the most valuable thing in your life, the most valuable person in your life, the the very thing you've been waiting for a hundred years. You gave up on having children when you were 50. I came back into your life, Abraham, or I came into your life when you were 75, and I told you you were going to have a kid. I made you wait 25 years, and now you're a hundred years old, and now I'm going to take that child from you. I'm going to ask you to offer up your child. You may go, wow, what's going on here? In fact, that's what Soren Kierkegaard says. He says, this is the most illogical and absurd ask of anything. Bruce Walkie, 90-year-old, oldest uh, Old Testament uh, scholar, uh, oldest, I mean, the, probably the foremost scholar in the Old Testament uh, alive today, says this about this, this passage of Scripture in particular. He says, this, one, this is one of the most theologically difficult texts in all of the Old Testament. This is not easy to get to. When you sit there and you look at it and you see absurdity, how ridiculous. Why would God do such a thing? Play such a mean trick. Make him barren for for 75 years and then promise him a child and then make him barren for another 25 years and then the child's born and then all of a sudden they're going to say, hey, now you're going to take a child and you're going to put him on an altar and you're going to offer your child. Wow. That's an incredible, absurd, ridiculous, illogical ask. But God wants to know where your love and loyalty lay. Where is it? Who is it that is foremost? This is what Jesus did when Jesus was talking with his disciples. He said, at times it sounds like he's promoting cannibalism. When he said, John six fifty three. he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of my son and, and drink his blood, you'll have no life in you. Other times Jesus said, to his disciples, to those who were following him. In Luke 14, verse 33, he said, those who do not give up everything they have cannot be my disciples, giving it all up over to him? What are you talking about? I thought he's giving me eternal life. Yes, but he's asking us to give all of ourselves over to him. This becomes so difficult. I'm not going to show this verse to you, but you jot it down in your notes. John chapter 6, verse 66 talks about how people walked away because of Jesus' words were too hard for them. Illogical, absurd, ridiculous, crazy almost. Another time, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How absurd and illogical and ridiculous is, what is Jesus on here? He's on trying to get us to answer the question ourselves. Who and where does our love and our loyalty lie? And if it's in any other relationship, any other thing than him, we're not worthy to be his disciple. If if our job is more important, if our financial security is more important, if our home is more important, if our comforts are more important, if if our political party and agenda is more important, then our love for Jesus and our absolute surrender to him and commitment to him, then my friends, we are failing the test. 
what it means to be a disciple. And if Abraham's going to be a friend of God, he's going to have to do some rigorous self-examination. He's going to have to go deep and, and do some relentless evaluation, which is exactly what Alan and Deborah Hirsch said in their great book called Untamed about being a disciple of Christ. He said to, to be a truly radical disciple does require a relentless evaluation of life's priorities and concerns together with an ongoing rigorous critique of our culture. We need to evaluate our culture as well to ensure that we are not adopting the values that subvert the very life and message that God has called us to live out. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in Luke 9, 23, he said, he said to me, if anyone would come after me, follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. To follow Jesus is not easy. I'm not going to pitch it off as some kind of easy believism. I'm preaching an all-out as an all-out commitment of your life. And Abraham was a friend of God. And this relationship, you're going to see here in a few moments, this relationship is going to go so deep in a few moments, going to go so wide in a few moments. It's going, to, it, it, it's going to get real. But sometimes we have to answer the hard question, where's our love and our loyalty before we can ever go any further? Um, had, a, had a great couple. Um, well, they were, they were on the rocks. Their, their marriage was on the rocks. We went in an old building. We weren't even in this building at this point. This young couple comes in, uh, and they had had one of them, the female, had been unfaithful to the husband. And it became really, they, they came to Grace Point in this kind of last-ditch effort. If you can't help us save our marriage, then we're done. And I met him the first day, talked to him, spent about three to five months with him, spending time with him in the Word and growing. And he came to faith in Christ. And, 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 and we were discipling together. And we came to this passage right here where he says, If you don't love me more than you love your mother and your children, your sister, your brother, and your father and your mother and all that kind of stuff... He's like, whoa. He said, I don't, I don't know that I want that. And I will say this again. Luke 6, 66 talks about how there are some who will walk away from God because the, the, what it means to be put him first, they just can't put him first. And I pray today, if we walk up to the line today, and there's anything else in front of that line, in front of your relationship with God. Again, you list it all off, your cars, your homes, your securities, your comforts. You list it all off. If there's anything in front of that line outside of the name of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, then, my friends, you need to back it off. Because that's a part of the testing that we will go through. Sometimes it's our health that brings us to the test. Sometimes it's our loss of a job that brings us to that test. Sometimes it's the loss of a relationship that brings us to that test. And the brokenness that comes out of that, the reality that comes out of that. The second reason he tests us is where does our trust and obedience stop? What line am I willing to walk up to but not cross? What, what are my limits with God? And he wants us to be limitless with him. He's a limitless God. He wants us to be limitless with him. If I'm holding anything back, if I'm giving God all of my life except for this section of my life, then we're missing it. And God leads Abraham to a mountain. I think God does some of his greatest works on the mountains. You read the scriptures and find it. God calls down fire from Mount Carmel. 
kills, I mean, excuse me, wipes out an entire Baal uh, 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 allegiant prophet, uh, uh, prophets. It's an incredible story of Elijah. You go to the New Testament, you find Jesus calls up his disciples to the mountains to listen to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You find, you go through scriptures that God reveals himself on the mountain of transfiguration to his disciples. You find that he gives the Great Commission on the Mount of Great, uh, uh, of great Commission. You, you, you find them, all of that discourse is on a mountain. He's calling up his disciples to the mountains. Here's another time he calls his disciples to a mountain, his friend to a mountain. Verse 2, it says this. It says, in one of the mountains in which I shall tell you. He says, you're going to go to a mountain. Where does he go? He's down in where he's been living in Beersheba. And God calls him, which is an elevation of about 850 feet, calls him up to Jerusalem, which is about uh, 2,575 feet high. Takes him four days to get there, 66 miles to track there. He calls him there, and you'll notice in this very compressed time, again, why does God do compressed time? It's to emphasize something. He is in this very compressed time. He says, so Abraham rose early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey. Now, he's going to give everything he gets out of bed. He's going to saddle his donkey. He's going he's to get a couple of guys to help him. He's going to get his son. He's going to cut some firewood. He gives him right up till noon. I mean, maybe in the afternoon. He's literally given day by day. Why does God do compressed time in the narratives? Why did the author do this? This is, a, this, is a, this is a quality of writing here that you can just skip over. It's to emphasize something. In fact, where we took two verses to go through uh, eight days, he's going to go from 16 verses in this chapter to do just three days. He's compressing it even more. And from verse 3 to verse 19, he's going to give the account of putting Isaac on the altar. Why is he doing that? He's doing it for emphasis. He's doing it for us to learn. So they go. So again, imagine Abraham waking young Isaac's about a teenager now. He, and he wakes him up or probably a teenager. He probably did wake him up. He said, hey, we're going on a trip. And then this is what it says. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, in verse 7, said, father, uh, my father. And he said, here I am, again, second time he's going to say that, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide. Circle that phrase, God will provide. For himself, the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went both on. So they went both of them together. Again, just imagine this, father and son, father and son trip, father and son retreat. They're going on a retreat. Okay, dad, this is great. We're going to have some great time. We're going to have some great conversation. I'm going to deep dive into this relationship, what it means to to be a friend of God. I I want to talk about the birds and the bees, whatever. I don't know what they're going to talk about on the trip. They got three days uh, and they're walking uh, up from again. They're they're, they're going from the valley up to the the mountain. And as they're walking, hey, God, where's, hey, dad, where's the, where's the sacrifice? God will provide. God will provide. Going a little further, he says, and when he came to the place in which I had told him, Abraham built an altar. I want to point this out. We'll talk about this later on in August. Um, This is the fourth time that Abraham will build an altar. That's important. Save that for August, okay? It will be here before you know it. Built the altar, and there he laid the wood in the the order, and he, he bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, wait, wait, how do you just skip over that? 
This teenage boy that could probably whip a 100-year-old dad in a heartbeat, he's going to lay me on an altar. He's going to tie me down. Let's go on a little further. And Abraham reached out his hand, and he took his knife, and he was going to slaughter his son. This makes the QAnon theory ridiculous. Here's a God who's calling the child sacrifices. What's going on here? But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. said, Abraham, Abraham, right before he cuts his throat. He said, here I am. Third time he said that. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy. and Do not anything to him. For no, for, for now I know that you fear God. Amen. He passed the test. He gets the test results. You, you fear God. Seeing that you have withheld, you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, uh, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went over and he took the ram and he offered it up on the burnt offering. Now here's what I want you to hear this because some of you are still talking about, wait, what? God said, put your son on the altar, tie him down, cut his throat, slaughter him. Offer. You're still stuck back on it. God was never going to have him killed. I was testing him. Isaac's life wasn't on trial. Abraham's faith was on trial. Remember that. Verse 1. But Abraham didn't know what, I know Abraham didn't know what he was going to do. What was going to happen? But he knew this. God was going to provide. God was going to take care of the situation. The point of the story is not the danger of the son. The point of the story is the testing of Abraham's faith. See, Satan tempts us to destroy us, but God tests us to strengthen us, to show us what we're really made of. I want your focus not to be on Isaac on the altar. I want your focus to be on Abraham and his faith because that's throughout Scripture. For all the way into the New Testament, it's going to point to Abraham. That's the person who, who is on trial here. But see, I, 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 going through the testing uh, portion. But here's what I want to go back to, what I showed you a few weeks ago. Abraham had to be obedient to what God had told him so that he could experience God. So that his knowledge of God would grow. So his relationship would go deeper. How's he a friend of God? He's a friend of God because it starts with obedience. You have to be obedient. When you're obedient, you experience God. When you experience God, your knowledge of God grows. You understand the depth, the breadth, the wealth of God. You understand his resources. You understand that when Abram said, God will provide, he didn't know what God was going to provide, but he had to trust God in the situation. And because of that trusting, obedient, experiential relationship with God, what happens? His relationship with God goes deeper and wider. So I told you to circle verse 8, God will provide. Verse 14. Verse 14, as I, as I close my message, it says, So Abraham called the name of that place. What do he call it? The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. That's the Hebrew name for God, Jehovah Jireh. Powerful, powerful statement. 
God will provide. Jehovah Jireh. I've, I've told, I pointed out several weeks ago that all these names of God were revealing the character of God, the person of God. None of those became reality unless he was obedient to God at every one of those turns. And then he experienced God and then he knew God and then his relationship with God became greater. Some people won't step up to the line and be obedient so they will never know, they will never experience, and their relationship with God will never be there. Abraham even believed, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, that God might raise him from the dead. He said, I don't know. God may raise him from the dead. If I kill him, God's going to raise him from the dead. God's able to, say, God's able to bring him back to life again. If I, if, if I go through with this, God, you will raise him up. What was Abraham thinking? He already had a big God. Not a small God. He had a big God. He already believed the gospel. Jesus' resurrection power, he already believed it before he had, 2,000 years before Jesus ever came, bled or died, or rose again. He was already believing the gospel. He was already believing that God could raise and conquer death and hell. Listen, God is Jehovah Jireh. Is he Jehovah Jireh to you? Have you experienced him? Have you obeyed him so that you could experience him so that your knowledge would grow of him so that your relationship would grow deeper? Have you experienced him like that? I've been thinking all week long, Mike, how have you experienced Jehovah Jireh? And I think about growing up, and, I, and again, these are just my stories. I growing up, single mom, inconsistent dad, and relying my whole heart life on my mom, and um, uh, three boys on a hairdresser's salary, and yet she was committed to making sure we had the best of what we could possibly have. He was my Jehovah Jireh. I think about the time whenever I started following the Lord and walking with the Lord and being serious about my faith. God provided Tim Logan, who's in this room, uh, Tom Jones, who's in this room, who became a Sunday school teacher of mine, provided other people in my life so that they would be mentors in my life and help shape my faith. God was my Jehovah Jireh. Thank God for my Sunday school teachers. Thank God for the people who poured into my life when I was a kid. God was my Jehovah Jireh. God was my Jehovah Jireh when God called us, our family to Africa. And we didn't know where we were going. And there's so many things we didn't know and we didn't have. We were moving to a place far off, way over there. And God was our provider. He was our Jehovah Jireh. When God, 20 years ago, I come right full circle where I started the message. 20 years ago, we started Grace Point Church. We came back. We had nothing. We were giving up a steady income, coming back to nothing. And we, had, we were just sharing our, our, our vision with people around us. We had five families to start with us. Remember sitting down to lunch with two of those five families and one of those members. I can still remember this day where he was sitting at the table, where I was sitting at the table, where Lord was sitting at the table, where the family was sitting at the table. I remember him looking across the table, circular table in the living room of somebody's home. And he said, this is Mike, if this church is going to ever become something, you're going to have to be full-time. You're going to have to make it happen. And he did, and they did, and God was Jehovah Jireh. What about your life? Have you ever experienced Jehovah Jireh? Had we not left Africa? Had we waited for all our ducks to be in a row, have all of our answers, have all of our money in our bank account before we ever moved, before we ever did, before we ever walked in faith, we would miss God being our provider. Would you bow your heads with me right now? I hope if you don't know God as your Jehovah Jireh, you will know him today. 
you'll give your life to following him today. Know Jesus as the God who's able to even raise from the dead. Before, 2,000 years before, and Abraham believed God so much, so deeply, that even if he took his own son's life, God would raise him back again. What are you trusting God with? Here's a better question. Keep your head bowed, your eyes closed, and look inside your soul. What are you not trusting God with? What is off limits to God? What is untouchable to God? I challenge you to put it out there now. And let, put it on the altar. Show your love and your loyalty is with God, not that thing on the altar. Father God, you know our hearts. May we not be found wanting in our trust in you, in our faith in you. Lord, we love you. I pray that, Lord, we walk with you and we will experience you and we will know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us?